heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Welcome to Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm. Talking today with a absolutely courageous COVID warrior through the battle of the pandemic all last year. And this this is today going to be a little different on Voice of a Nation. We're, we're going to spend this program talking about the journey through COVID because my guest today and I connected actually very early in the COVID pandemic and it was quite an interesting saga that we're going to share with you today through the eyes of a politician and a frontline physician actively treating COVID patients to keep them out of the hospital by starting early at home against a lot of the political obstacles that were hitting physicians at that time. So what lessons did we learn and what insights were gained about the way to avoid such massive collateral damage from not the virus itself, but all of the response to it, the massive lockdowns, the governor's edicts that interfered with the physician-patient relationship, the political dealings and wheelings and the subterfuge and the cover-ups in Washington, D.C. In my experience, never was the swamp in Washington so vividly exposed as we saw firsthand through the eyes of my guests today with all of the, with what was going on in Washington to actively stop doctors from treating patients early and avoid so many hospitals and deaths. And so that's my privilege to bring on today to tell the story of his journey through COVID, Senator Ron Johnson. He is currently the senior senator from Wisconsin. And what I found fascinating about his whole approach to everything related to COVID, and in fact, even to how we connected, is is that he has approached everything from the common sense, practical mindset of a very successful businessman. So often politicians go into politics early in life and they go into politics to make a career of it. That was not the case with Ron Johnson. He had been running a very, very successful plastics company that was producing plastic sheet for packaging and printing applications for many years, as an accountant, he started and worked up through, worked all aspects of this business 
and that he started with with his brother-in-law. And the, what is so striking is that the problem-solving skills and the common sense approaches that any businessman has to use in order to solve problems and keep the business running and keep it successful is exactly the skill set that he brought into the political arena in Congress. He was first elected to the Senate in 2010 when he defeated Democratic incumbent Russ Feingold and then reelected in the tumultuous political year of 2016, again defeating Russ Feingold. And Senator Johnson, when, when he first ran, he was concerned as an accountant, he was concerned because the federal government is bankrupting America. It's pretty obvious to everyone these days that they're printing money and that's, that's spending money we don't have. No business can operate that way. And certainly the United States of America cannot either. He thinks it's important for citizen legislators to ally with those who are facing that reality. So his manufacturing background has taught him how to attack the root cause of a problem, not mere symptoms. Very much the mindset of physicians when we are taking an individual patient, looking at the problems the patient has and thinking through, how do we get to the root cause? Don't just put a medicine into the pot as a Band-Aid. Of course, more and more of that's happening today. He, he really is concerned about the huge deficits, the fact that that has an adverse impact on economic activity and at the time of taking office, high unemployment and terrible record under the Obama administration on job creation. In fact, massive amounts of job losses were symptoms of the problem, but they were not the cause. It was the ever-expanding size and scope of the federal government. And we'll see how, as we go through this story today, our, the personal journey, we will see exactly how the size, scope, and vast power of the federal government is one of the cornerstones of what cost lives in this pandemic. Senator Johnson served as chairman of the Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee from 2015 to 2021. And he is now the ranking member of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. He serves on the Budget, Foreign Relations, Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committees. From operating equipment to keeping the company books and selling its products in his days as a businessman, he's been involved in so many aspects of the function of a major business that this experience helps him to look at how to solve problems for our country that affect all of us. And the other interesting dimension, Ron was raised on a farm and so were his parents. When you're raised on a farm, the work ethic is just imbued in, in you because many times if you don't do your chores every day and you don't stay on top of it either, the animals die or you don't eat. So as a result, he, he's worked hard all of his life and had jobs beginning as early as age 15 as a tax paying job. But before that, like many of us, he actually did all kinds of odd jobs around the neighborhood and home. So I, I think all of this conveys the breadth of the person 
who I was privileged to meet early in the COVID pandemic. And we then worked together in many different ways over the course of the year and including into this year. So welcome, Senator Johnson. You're going to tell your story and look at how we interfaced and also a little bit about some of your personal dealings, both with COVID uh, as well as some of the personal dealings in medicine that really opened your eyes to how critically important it is for doctors to be able to think independently and respond immediately. So let's start the journey. It was quite, quite a time. Well, hold Dr. Lee, let, let me quick correct one thing you said in my biography, because if I don't, I'll be attacked for allowing a falsehood. Uh, oh, my okay. parents were raised on farms. Uh, I certainly went down in the summertime and did, did work on farms, but uh, I, I was you know, raised uh, in, in a non-farm setting. Uh, but you, you mentioned my, my background when it comes to uh, medical involvement. Um, it really was with my, and I should also say, in the, stay in the, say at the outset, I'm not a doctor. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not qualified to make medical judgments. Uh, I, I did sell some of our plastic, and most of our plastics actually went into medical device packaging, uh, endoscopic surgery packaging. So, so I'm very familiar with the uh, FDA protocols and you know, the, the rigor that uh, medical device manufacturers go through in, in certifying you know, their supply lines. But my first real involvement in medicine, I would say, was with the birth of my, my first child, my daughter, Carrie, who was born, born with the transposition of the great arteries uh, or the great vessels, sometimes it's called. And this is where uh, a, a baby's aorta and pulmonary artery are reversed. Basically, these children are have two separate circulatory systems. So, the the, the way they get them to survive is uh, a, a, the heart of a of a baby in 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 the uterus has holes to allow for circulation of oxygen through the uh, through the body. And so, what they did the first day of life was something called a balloon septostomy, which uh, they catheterized the heart, uh, put the catheter through one of these holes in the, in the uh, uh, aorta. And then they blow up a balloon and they just kind of pull it back through and, and rip a, a larger hole in the heart. I mean, it seems like a pretty brutal procedure uh, on a heart that's uh, smaller than the size of a, a, you know, your thumb basically. Um, but that, that allowed my daughter to uh, survive till the age of eight months. They generally like to get them further downstream. So when they're doing open heart surgery, the, the heart is larger, but the age of, Eight months, my daughter went through open heart surgery where they rebaffled the upper chamber of the heart. Uh, we, we were at a point in time, uh, this is 1983, where they were beginning to rebaffle it with pericardial tissue at some centers. Previous to that, they did it with Dacron, which obviously doesn't grow as well with the heart. So my, my daughter has had a, a wonderful result. Now, nowadays, uh, what they do is they just literally switch the, the two arteries. And you would think that's what they, they would have done back then. But um, back then, that procedure had about a 50% mortality rate. And the atrial switch procedure uh, that my daughter had was, was a far lower mortality rate. So I, I tell that story. Uh, and by the way, the, the, the result is fact, my, my daughter just turned 38 years old. She's actually a nurse practitioner. She's practiced in NICUs and PICUs. Um, 
incredibly bright, uh, beautiful uh, girl, and, and uh, we couldn't be prouder of her. So we had a fabulous result. But I tell the story to primarily make the point, that is when I really understood the term medical practice. You know, prior to that, I thought, well, medical practice, I mean, the practice is that building. You know, it's, it's that clinic. I mean, that's, that's the practice, right? It's that, that's not how I interpret it anymore. I, I really now interpret medical practice to describe what, how medicine advances. And, and it's not perfect. It's, it's, not, it's not all evidence-based. It's not all protocol-driven. Medi- medicine advances through practice, through trial and error. And I'm all for protocols. I'm all for evidence-based medicine. It makes so much sense. I mean, rather than have a, a bunch of doctors just trying anything anytime, it's like you learn from each other. Uh, you learn from random, you know, double-blind random clinical trials, uh, and you advance medicine that way. But you need doctors practicing medicine to continue to push the envelope of what's possible. And in particular, in a pandemic, we really needed so many doctors to practice medicine. And we needed to use our information technology to spread that knowledge, realizing that it wasn't all going to be perfect, that all these things weren't going to work, but patients were dying. And what I think happened is we were, we, we were so enamored with double-blind random critical trials is the only thing that Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins and, and you know, the people inside our uh, federal health agencies would allow doctors to use. We completely constrained them. And then, of course, what, what is even worse is that social media didn't help you know, spread information, didn't help those doctors who were willing to think outside the box and actually and treat patients to spread that information and share it with their colleagues. Instead, what happened is, is the social media censored those doctors, vilified them. And, it's, and as a result, I, I really think the, the way we handled COVID and because of all these uh, factors, I, I think people died that didn't have to die. And I, I think it's just tragic. It's been unbelievably frustrating. There's no question that that is exactly right. In fact, my first editorial on this subject was written just around the time between March 15th and March 20th, 2020. And that editorial was nationally released by the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. I've been on their editorial writing team for 11 years at the time. And it was entitled, Governors Are Blocking Physicians' Attempt to Save Lives in the Coronavirus Pandemic. And what was staggering to me, we we were getting reports in February out of China that they were using hydroxychloroquine successfully to save lives. And China shared that information with South Korea and India, Iran and Turkey. And they all, in fact, China shipped millions of doses of hydroxychloroquine manufactured in China to Iran and Turkey. India was already manufacturing billions of doses because they 
they're a major generic manufacturer for the medicine that serves the world. So all of those countries began using it very, very quickly and with extraordinary success, which paralleled Dr. Vladimir Zelenko's experience in the United States and other frontline physicians. His Dr. Zelenko was one of the early pioneers in, in the United States. And that grew out of his awareness of what was going on in France with Dr. Didier Raoul, who also was treating people extraordinarily successfully because they were thinking creatively, what have we got? We've got a virus and we've got medicines that are older. We use for these kinds of problems. Well, at that moment, very quickly, several Democrat governors jumped in and issued emergency orders that were preventing doctors from using hydroxychloroquine in spite of the fact that it was FDA approved for 65 years. And that was the point at which I was just as a physician outraged and wrote this editorial. It, the governors in Nevada, Michigan, New York, Missouri, and, and even Texas at that point had issued emergency orders restricting doctors and pharmacists from access to hydroxychloroquine for COVID. And what made me so angry was the fact that they, these are politicians. They had no background in infectious disease, medicine, research, design, epidemiology, and they had no knowledge of the fact that 20% of our prescriptions were over the counter every day using FDA approved medicines for new uses. So needless to say, I was just outraged and I was not going to be quiet about it. So from that, I did a radio show that with one of the leading radio talk hosts in Wisconsin, it turns out. So take it from there, Senator Johnson. That was my coming into it. Yeah, I, I, I do a radio interview with Vicki McKenna. She's based out of Madison, probably once a week. Uh, we've, we've become real friends and, and she is very knowledgeable. I mean, she does, she does her homework. And so I don't know how you connected with her, but uh, uh, this, this was in, in the, you know, probably late March timeframe. And when you wrote your letter, it had to be somewhere around the time when President Trump initially held a press conference. I don't know the exact day. I think it might've been March 22nd, where, where he mentioned the possibility of hydroxychloroquine. Um, I'll continue on that timeline because we, we talked last night and I, I proposed that we actually kind of go through the history of this. And so I, I, I've developed a, a timeline on this. But before I do it, when I first heard of the possibility of a generic drug that literally there are billions of tablets prescribed around the world annually, so there'd be a big supply of this thing. I, th I think I found out early on that the cost of a one tablet of hydroxychloroquine costs about seven cents to manufacture. A full treatment, as it was being proposed, was, was probably under, under $20, uh, even combined with azithromycin and, and you know, the zinc. Um, so to me, and again, this is, this is very early in the pandemic. Uh, they just announced a two-week shutdown. And I, in my mind, I thought, again, not being a doctor, I, yeah, I didn't know whether hydroxychloroquine worked or not, or, you know, um, th th there's still dispute about that. You know, there's still people argue over that. I, I was just more concerned about that could be the, the silver bullet 
a cheap, generic, widely available drug, whether it's, whether it's hydroxychloroquine, and again, I'd never heard of ivermectin or cyclosporin. I mean, there are a number of ones that are, you know, different physicians claim are effective, but regardless, it's like, I mean, this, this is what we need because if we have an effective treatment where people, if they get COVID, they, they won't get severe symptoms, they won't progress into the hospital, they won't die, you know, the fear of the unknown, and let's face it, there was, there was a, there's still a lot unknown. But back then in that time frame, there was a lot of unknown and there was a lot of fears as a result of it. I mean, we, we all saw China and, you know, people in moon suits. Uh, by the way, I, I don't know how much that might have even been staged to, to create a sense of fear and panic around the world, uh, but it certainly did. And so I always thought if, if, if there was a cheap generic drug, well, I mean, that would be the solution. But of course, because it came out of President Trump's lips, it became immediately politicized. And, and that was so unbelievably unfortunate. And, and again, because of that, it just, it just seems that, and I, I, to this day, do not know, and I can't explain it, but it baffles me that our federal health agencies, the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, they, they have done, I'll put it this way, very little to explore robustly explore the repurposing of cheap generic drugs that could be effective in the use of, of hydroxychloroquine or in, in, in uh, treating uh, COVID. Now, what they have approved, and again, this is kind of in the same time frame, is they approved remdesivir, which costs over $3,000. You know, certainly what I've heard is that oftentimes patients, you can't even get the full treatment because it does create some, some level of liver toxicity in some patients. Uh, they changed the, the observable outcome of the random controlled study because it wasn't reducing death, but it was reducing hospital stays. But for, you know, while they're tanking the use of hydroxychloroquine with this you know, emergency use authorization, and we could probably, probably get into Dr. Bright and how that all happened as well, but you know, they're, they're purposefully reducing the availability of hydroxychloroquine, even though the president and Secretary Azar were telling them to make this more widely available. Um, they're pushing remdesivir, which costs, costs a whole lot more and causes some, some liver toxicity. I mean, this made no sense whatever. And to this day, I cannot get out of the, the NIH, even though Dr. Collins, I had a phone conversation with him. I've written him three oversight letters asking him, and he claimed in the phone conversation, oh, Senator, we, we spent hundreds of millions of dollars exploring, you know, 600 different uh, re repurposed drugs. I said, okay, well, well, give me the, you know, show me what you've done. To this day, I haven't got a response. And my, my phone call with him was in late December, and I've sent two other oversight letters since that point in time. Um, so again, I, I can't explain why the NIH hasn't done more why, you know, for example, the, the fraudulent Lancet study, I mean, there's just so many, there's so many things that have hampered the ability of physicians to practice medicine, to use repurposed drugs, and to save patients. And, and again, my, my, and I'll end on this note for this point. That is why I am so grateful and impressed with doctors like you, or, or Dr. Fareed, or Dr. Tyson, or Dr. McCulloch. Uh, you know, doctors that have actually had the courage 
to treat COVID patients and to practice medicine. Um, we, we had that one Dr. Ashish Jha at, at one of my hearings in November, uh, totally trashed hydroxychloroquine. I actually ended up writing a op-ed that the New York Times ran and then titled it, The Snake Oil Salesman of the Senate, referring to myself, Dr. McCulloch, Dr. Rish, Dr. Uh, Fareed as snake oil salesmen. And then when I asked him in the hearing, well, well Dr. Jha, uh, do you treat COVID patients? Have you ever treated a COVID patient? And his answer was no. So, I mean, th th those are the people that are preventing doctors from practicing medicine uh, from, as, as Dr. McCulloch talks about, you know, he is so outside the circle of compassion. He's so far removed from patients as is Dr. Fauci, as is Dr. Collins, as, is mostly, as are most of these doctors in our federal health agencies. And th they're the ones trashing and preventing compassionate doctors practicing medicine from actually treating their patients. And, and there, there continues to be an enormous prescription log jam. For, I mean, families are having to sue hospitals to give ivermectin, for example, to a family member that's on a ventilator close to death. It's like, why not give it a shot? But they're having to take hospitals to court. In some cases, the courts have ordered it and it's, it's saved a patient's life. In other, in other cases, even though the courts have ordered, the hospitals have still refused. This is, it's madness what has happened. And I know we've jumped all over the place. We ought, maybe ought to talk about some more organized fashion. But again, it has just been baffling to me. I, you know, we both have been beating our heads against the wall here for over a year. And it just doesn't make any sense. And again, I, I, I think people, I think tens of thousands of people have, have lost their lives that didn't have to. It's, it's, a, it's a travesty. It's a tragedy. It, it's actually one of the greatest tragedies in my lifetime and preventable. And I, I have some medical thoughts to add to what you've said, but let's take a brief break and we'll come back and pick that up after our break. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host on Voice of a Nation. We'll be right back. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. AmericaOutloud.com. Simply put, we're patriots who believe in Ronald Reagan's vision of a shining city on a hill. From sea to shining sea. 
You can listen in on iHeartRadio, our free apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa, or our world-class media player. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. Welcome back to the second half of the first hour on Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America standing in for Malcolm as your Team Nation guest host. With me is Senator Ron Johnson, and we are taking a trip through the journey of COVID-19 and all of the roadblocks and problems of what the federal government did to block doctors from practicing medicine. And so I wanted to add something to what Senator Johnson had said before the break. It, it was actually even worse with the remdesivir story that from a medical standpoint than, than what Senator Johnson described since he was not a physician and is not a physician. Remdesivir, they, unlike other clinical trials, they actually modified the clinical trial, as he mentioned, during the course of the trial to change the outcomes against which they, they were going to decide whether it was effective or not, which is never done. That, that was a very troubling position. But the other aspect of it was remdesivir had a 10% death rate from respiratory collapse in the clinical trials, which is the condition that it was supposed to be treating. And the liver damage and some of the other complications of this drug were running in the range of 25%. And, and that is simply an unacceptably high rate of complications when an alternative such as hydroxychloroquine at the time that was the one that with azithromycin and zinc and vitamin D, all the frontline doctors were using so successfully, 
And that had a 65 year track record of safety with no deaths associated in the early treatment use that we were doing. And it had been safely used around the world in pregnant women, nursing mothers, elderly and young children since literally 1955 one of the safest medicines in our history of medicines available to treat malaria and many other conditions. It was a diabetes drug in India for 40 years. It still is the second line diabetes drug. So it's, it's a widely used, very safe medicine. And one of the things that became quickly clear is that it was, there was something serious going on with an ag agenda to block it because this emergency use authorization that Senator Johnson just described was actually written to do the opposite of what Secretary Azar, President Trump, and others in the administration were trying to do, which was make the generic medicine available for doctors to use if they thought it appropriate. And later, this, this was in March, March 28th, that that was issued. And that was one of the reasons my first editorial came out on this whole point. And that was the reason that there was so much beginning persecution of doctors through the state medical boards, because they claimed that based on the emergency use authorization, restricting it to hospitals, that doctors couldn't use it outpatient. So actually they built a case from that point that prevented so much early access. And I, I just wanted to make that point. Later, Senator Johnson, you have some input on some of the background on Dr. Rick Bright's role prior to that and after that when he came out with an interview where he admitted to deliberately blocking it Let's share your thoughts on the political side. I know mine on the medical side were just outraged that that was allowed to occur. So let's share your perspective in the trenches in Washington. Well, this is where it's, it's maybe uh, appropriate for me to, to read from a, about a four-page letter I got from Dr. Stephen Hatfill. Uh, quick describe Dr. Hatfill. Uh, he was a physician, a pathologist, a uh, biological weapon expert. He was actually falsely accused of uh, uh, spreading anthrax. Uh, he got a big award uh, for defamation, I think, from the, from the federal government uh, because of that uh, false accusation. But, but he was actually working as a consultant for the White House. So, so he was in the White House and he saw this up close and personal. And, and he's written up, a, and which was provided to my committee. Uh, but, he, but he's talking about how, again, I, I think President, so just a quick timeline. So I think President Trump Somewhere before March 23rd, it might have been actually March 22nd, where he mentioned hydroxychloroquine in in a in a, one of the conferences or press conferences, and of course the press immediately started suspecting that he had financial interest. I mean, I've I've gone back and I've looked at some of the press coverage once he did that, and how you know just him saying it you know poisoned the well for hydroxychloroquine. So on March 23rd, Bright received, and Dr. Bright, by the way, was the head of BARDA. Uh, the, the Biomedical Advanced Research Development Authority. He's not a doctor, but he's a PhD. But he, he received notice that the senior task force leadership, now this is the group of led by President uh, or Vice President Pence, was asking BARDA to establish an expanded access investigational new drug 
protocol for HCQ. That, that would have made it you know, wide, obtainable from the stockpile by doctors and really kind of giving the, uh, even though doctors already have the off-label prescription right to, to prescribe FDA approved drugs for any medical condition, they believe it's appropriate. And that's, that is a right. I mean, FDA doesn't tell doctors how to practice medicine, although over time what's happening is these federal health agencies do basically tell doctors how to practice medicine. So anyway, this, this was going to make it more acceptable, more widely available. Uh, but Dr. Bright didn't like that. And uh, nor did apparently Dr. Janet Woodcock, who now is the acting uh, FDA com commissioner. And she recommended that they write an emergency use authorization, uh, which they did. And so on March 29th, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization that limited uh, hydroxychloroquine to quote hospitalized patients uh, said the hospitalized patient were likely to have a greater prospect of benefit when, when reality, the exact opposite was, was true. So they restricted the use of hydroxychloroquine to people that are already so sick there in the hospital when everybody I was talking to at the time thought, no, I mean, hydroxychloroquine is going to be most effective like Tamiflu used early in the process. Um, then, you know, you follow up then on April 24th, a flawed VA study appeared in the internet, which was followed by an unpublished Brazilian study involving high, uh, almost toxic use doses of hydroxychloroquine. And then I think the, the, the real killer here was the, the false, the May 22nd fraudulent Lancet paper uh, that trashed hydroxychloroquine that, that had to be re retracted two weeks later because it was completely fraudulent. So again, basically what happened is the agencies themselves purposefully, because they didn't like President Trump promoting hydroxychloroquine, uh, did everything they could to prevent its use by doctors, to poison its use. Uh, medical journal, Lancet, you know, joined in the, the, the trashing of hydroxychloroquine. And that pretty well killed doctors' ability to, to use this, so, so much to the extent that in Australia, it's illegal for a doctor to prescribe hydroxychloroquine for COVID. Now, they can prescribe it as an anti-malarial, they can prescribe it for lupus and for rheumatoid arthritis, but not hydroxychloroquine. So, I mean, how does any of this make sense? And the answer is it doesn't. And again, I, I still am baffled by what happened, you know, specifically with hydroxychloroquine. Again, I'm not a doctor. I, I know people like Dr. Harvey Risch through meta-analysis and, you know, observational studies. They're, they're doctors, uh, Dr. Zelenko, Peter McCulloch. Uh, in a part of a multi-drug protocol. And of course, your, your organization has uh, really got the only written protocol on, on how to use this multi-drug cocktail to treat early patients. But the, the world health agencies have not embraced really any early treatment to the extent that right now the NIH guidelines on, on treatment for hydrox on, for COVID is literally do nothing. If, if, if you think you have COVID, if you test positive for COVID, just go home, isolate yourself, uh, afraid, scared, and do nothing until you're so sick where your oxygen levels get to a certain level, low enough, where you have to set, check yourself in the hospital and then hope that uh, you know some of the, the treatments, and we could talk a little bit about the corticosteroids that uh, Dr. Pierre Corey uh, talked about in a May hearing of 2020 that I thought was pretty groundbreaking, um, you know, and hope that those corticosteroids and, and other treatments just might help you. But 
just again, just like flu, you're so much better off. Really, any disease isn't that just a basic premise of medicine? Is early detection, early treatment, you can have a better outcome. Yet for COVID, we're completely ignoring that foundational premise of, of medical practice and of treatment. Uh, just we're, we're not we're not we're trying to detect it early, I guess, just so people get isolated, so we don't spread it. But we do we're we're recommending nothing, and we really have explored nothing for for early treatment. Well, you know, actually, let me clarify that. It's not that we have explored nothing. It's that it, it's quite the opposite in the sense that there have been many there, there. If you go to the C-19 studies summary online, C19study.com, people can find the hundreds of studies that were done. These were being discussed with some of my colleagues in March, April, and May, and June of, of 2020. The clinical studies, clinical outcome studies were being done. And what was happening on the randomized clinical trials that were set up, we later learned in some research that Dr. Peter Bregan has done, and we'll come back to that, we later learned that some of the funding of those early treatment randomized clinical trials in more private settings, not in the government settings, were, were done, started with funds from the Gates Foundation, and then suddenly were stopped abruptly for administrative reasons, that was a quote, not medical safety reasons, and that that happened several times with several different medicines. Actually, uh, Dr. McCullough was involved in some of the early trials with hydroxychloroquine, randomized clinical trials that were stopped abruptly administratively by outside forces. And other doctors were involved in some of the early trials of ivermectin, same story, funding from the Gates Foundation, and then administratively stopped before any benefit could be shown. And then the press ran with the negative story. The early trials showed no benefit. Then Dr. Norchasm was undertaking a clinical trial of cyclosporine for early treatment based on his knowledge as an immunologist as to how cyclosporine used in transplant settings is, was actually almost he described it to me as a lock and key mechanism that would work beautifully in this setting with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. He ran into the same obstacles. Suddenly, the early treatment study was stopped abruptly, blocked at the FDA, multiple aspects of what he ran into. And we could do another segment with him on some of those obstacles. But the point I'm trying to make for our listeners to understand, this was deliberate interference with randomized clinical trials. And we now see that the goal of all of the stakeholders that includes NIH, CDC, FDA with patents on vaccines, Gates Foundation that's been developing vaccines and investing in a return on patents on vaccines and investments in pharmaceutical companies that make them and the pharmaceutical manufacturers. It's a 
tangled web of financial interests that I as a physician could begin to untangle and look at. And Dr. Bregan in his book, COVID-19 and the Global Predators, We Are the Prey, which is out now, you can order it at wearetheprey.com. We're beginning to see that the orchestrated suppression of hydroxychloroquine that Senator Johnson and I were in the trenches trying to break through these roadblocks and getting blocked at every turn, that was orchestrated and planned to prevent early treatment. And why is that important? Because the emergency use authorization that the FDA has available for situations like this and emergency approval of a treatment, they could not, under FDA regulations, they could not issue an emergency use authorization for these very lucrative vaccines uh, if there was an early treatment available that worked. That's the bottom line to our listeners out there. The early treatment was blocked to make a way for the emergency use authorization to get fly through the FDA to get the vaccines on the market with two months of safety data. So it was bigger from, from the medical side and the regulatory side we deal with all the time. It was actually a bigger issue. And, and it was clear that that was planned. Yeah, so I, I didn't mean to intent, or imply that there weren't studies going on. There, again, there were courageous doctors that were treating patients, and there were all kinds of studies going on. What I was talking about is the federal agencies, and quite honestly, around the world, for whatever reason. Uh, and again, I, I have my suspicions, but I just, I just don't have the, the absolute proof. But for whatever reason, the federal agencies ignored positive studies and just completely embraced all the negative ones and continue to push the negative ones as did the medium, uh, the, the media and the social media. Uh, one quick little story, because this is, again, this is all happening mid to late March, early April. I mean, that's, you know, I, I worked with you, uh, you helped uh, write a letter and then get, uh, I think in the end 13 or 1700 physicians to sign a letter to President Trump begging him to fix that emergency use authorization because you know what I first understood is we had a log jam in the stockpile. We had 30 million doses uh, donated by primarily Novartis, I think it was the, the, larger, uh, the largest pharmaceutical company that donated uh, uh, 30 million doses or close to 30 million doses of uh, hydroxychloroquine to the national stockpile, but it was just sitting in the national stockpile. It, it just wasn't being distributed. So there, there were people inside the White House together with pressure from me that we broke that log jam. I thought, okay, now we've solved the problem. Uh, only to find out, no, that's not the main problem. The main problem was what I kept calling the prescription log jam. And that was the, the, the log jam created by Dr. Bright and Dr. Woodcock with this emergency use authorization that highly restricted the use of hydroxychloroquine to only in hospital settings. Uh, so so that, then we started trying to unbreak that. I, I remember a, a, a a phone conversation with the president. I had a number of phone conversations directly with the president, begging him to order his agencies to, you know, unblock this logjam. I said, I remember one time I said, Mr. President, it was, he said, well, talk to Dr. Hahn. You know, he's a great guy. He'll, he'll take care of this. I said, well, Mr. President, I'm talking to Steve Hahn. 
I, I, he's a nice guy. I, I agree with that. But understand, it's the FDA that screwed this up. They have to unscrew it. And of course, it never got unscrewed. It never got fixed. But one story I want to tell you is, is I reached out immediately to uh, uh, the CEO of Novartis, uh, uh, Mr. Vas Neris Simhan. And incre- you know, my main point was just to thank him for making that donation. But I also wanted to talk to him because this, this, by the way, was a serious consideration early on in terms of hydroxychloroquine is if, if this became, if this was an effective prophylaxis, for, a, for example, or an effective treatment, I mean, this could be in short supply in no time. And there, there were concerns initially, if, you know, for the, the rheumatoid arthritis or the lupus patients uh, that relied on this for their conditions, would we have enough? You know, how, how would we potentially have to ration this? If it really works, so you know, I, I was calling the the CEO of Novartis to, you know, determine you know what, what is their manufacturing capability. I mean, can you can you can, can you supply this? So, you know, I, I saw you know the billions of doses being used every year. So you know, th- this was a drug that I think could could be widely available, and, and you could ramp up production very quickly, very cheaply on it as well. Um, and so, in, in those conversations with the CEO of Novartis. Uh, he was talking again, very cooperative. Uh, he's very accessible. I could text him. He text me right back. And he was talking about all these trials that they were conducting, that, that they would have the results in about mid-May to early June. And so I, I was really looking for, very optimistic. I mean, I'm going, you know, we, we just might have, you know, the, the cure, the, the, the silver bullet to end this pandemic before it really gets out of the blocks here. But was, what was curious, and I have no explanation for this, my last text with him was, uh, where he responded was in April of April 23rd, 2020. And then he pretty well went radio silent. I, I texted him in on May 12th, 2020, go, you know, cause again, he was saying mid May, you know, do you have the results of these trials? I never heard back from him. I've, I've tried a couple of times, but uh, for whatever reason, somebody that had been incredibly accessible to me that I was talking about, you know, thanking him for the donation he made of hydroxychloroquine that he, his company was involved in all these trials all of a sudden didn't want to talk to me about hydroxychloroquine. Uh, again, it's all this, the same period of time when I think people realize that, you know, we were going to have a vaccine and I can't remember exactly at what point in time we, we, you know, started operation warp speed, but at that close to that time period, everybody's attention, everybody's focus, everybody's effort went toward the development of vaccine and again, th- this may be the miracle vaccine in all of human history. But we also do know that there, there certainly is some concern with vaccinating people that are previously infected. I've, I've gotten all kinds of hot water. I've been attacked because as somebody who's had COVID that now has had an antibody test with very high levels of antibody, I've decided not to get the vaccine and I am being attacked for it. Senator Paul is being attacked for it. But, but again, I'm just giving you a little bit of inside baseball here in terms of what was happening behind the scenes uh, how we were trying to understand what, what was causing this logjam of prescribing and give, giving doctors access to prescribing that or other things like cyclosporine right. or ivermectin. You know, what is all happening here? And it sure seems related to everybody's focus, everybody's attention being turned toward the vaccine, which continues to this day. Well, that was exactly the point when my editorial, my first editorial on the governor's blocking hydroxychloroquine in an orchestrated plan 
because it, they all did it within a few days. Clearly there was a plan. And that was March 26 was when it was published and when it was released nationally. Then I did the Milwaukee interview with Vicki McKenna at the end of March, right in the first day or two of April. And literally I, I was quite surprised when my assistant came in and interrupted me at, um, in an appointment and said, you need to take this call. It's Senator Johnson from Washington, D.C. And, and I laughed and I thought, what is she calling me for? I don't know, Senator Johnson. And you were, it was so funny that day because you said, I just heard your interview on Vicki McKenna in Milwaukee. And I want to know what's going on out there in the field that doctors are not prescribing hydroxychloroquine. We got these millions of doses sitting in the national stockpile. So that was when I told you what we were up against. Governors, edicts that, were, uh, that had never happened in my entire lifetime, much less my medical career. We were also against a coordinated release from state medical boards. I'm licensed in multiple states. And I was getting the same letter and same language from multiple states right at that same time telling us that we risk problems if we tried to apply hydroxychloroquine for COVID. They couched it in um, language that they could avoid some legal issues perhaps, but the, the threat was implied and many doctors were frightened. So then we also were finding, I tried to prescribe it for some of my patients in March and my doctor tried to prescribe it for me in March of 2020 and the pharmacist refused to fill it. I never encountered that either. And so at that point, I asked my local pharmacist whom I knew personally and knew well, and I, I said, what's going on? And he said, you know, there's something really strange going on. He, he worked with Walgreens, the big chain. And he said, I, I read about the studies in that was coming out of China in about late January, February, when, when this was leaking out. And I learned from some colleagues that they were using hydroxychloroquine with success. And I ordered in extra supplies for our pharmacy to be proactive and be ready. And he said, we got a directive from the state pharmacy board that we were not to fill prescriptions for hydroxychloroquine if we suspected, note the pharmacist who didn't evaluate the patient, if the pharmacist thought the doctor might be using it for hydroxychloroquine. That, Senator Johnson, has never, ever happened in my whole career in medicine. And I've talked to thousands of doctors. I'm part of a team that Dr. McCullough assembled that has 500 doctors on an email group. And we're exchanging information from around the world every single day. That has never happened. So I was encountering resistance from the pharmacy, the state medical board, and our governor of Arizona later jumped on board with the other governors and issued a restrictive order. This was coordinated, and that was the point at which 
I gave you an earful about what we doctors were up against and you took the ball and ran with it and been a warrior on it on this front ever since. Well, real quick story, because I know you're probably up against another break here, but uh, I think you also made me aware of a, a relatively new practicing doctor in Florida that had been issued a subpoena by the Department of Homeland Security, their Homeland Security Investigation Unit. She had written four prescriptions of hydroxychloroquine, I think for her, her parents and her in-laws, four prescriptions, and they were subpoenaing all of her records her medical records. And so I, I actually called up Mark Meadows on that one. And eventually that subpoena just went away. But again, it's just unbelievably puzzling. And, and again, that's what, you know, you, you helped me write the letter uh, in, on April 7th, I think it was 1300 uh, physicians signed it asking President Trump and his administration to fix this. It never got fixed. Well, you're right. And what, what was so strange about that, that, that poor physician in Florida was a, you know, a woman trying to do the right thing. And she, she actually treated a, a pretty broad spectrum of, of low income patients. And, and they were actually, it wasn't, it wasn't just a routine investigation. They were actually, it was in Homeland Security. They were actually accusing her of drug trafficking for four oh. prescriptions. And uh, she reached out to the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons for legal help because she was frightened with Homeland Security coming in and threatening her for drug trafficking. It, it, was, uh, it was unreal. It, it was like some horror show. So that's when I reached out to you and said, is there any way we can find out what's going on with this? This poor doctor is, is terrified. So it was, it was really worse than even a medical board um, complaint. Well, it's important to note, too, the President of the United States wanted doctors to be able to use, with their medical judgment, and have available to them hydroxychloroquine. The, the Secretary of HHS wanted doctors to have this available, but bureaucrats underneath them prevented that from happening, and they prevented it through the, the rest of his administration. Much to his frustration, trust me. He kept telling people, fix this. You know, do what Senator Johnson is telling you. Get this thing fixed. He never could get it fixed. We're going to continue this discussion. There's much more to come in the second hour of Voice of a Nation. So stay tuned for the second hour of Team Nation guest host, Dr. Lee for America with Senator Ron Johnson on Voice of a Nation on America Out Loud. and soul of a nation beckons the call the voice of our forefathers heard in the distance a house divided against itself cannot stand to reclaim our honor, honor, honor. our soul. soul the challenges of a generation call out future generations hang in the balance we choose liberty this is the voice of a nation the nation the nation the nation and now malcolm Welcome back to the second hour of Voice of a Nation. This is the Voice of a Nation when you're hearing the story of our journey through COVID from the eyes of a powerful politician in Washington, head of the 
Senate Oversight Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, who was a warrior to try and help us break through as physicians on the ground to get access to treatment to save lives in the COVID pandemic. And we are continuing the discussion that we began in the first hour. If you missed it, go back and take a listen when it comes out on podcast on America Out Loud, because this this is quite a saga and the public has been prevented from knowing many of these details. And Senator Johnson was right when he called me and suggested that that he'd like to tell the story of what it was like to be in Washington, in the middle of this fight, trying to advocate for patients and doctors to be able to do what doctors always do, treat illness early, use our best judgment to design the treatment for a given patient using all the tools we have at hand and make clinical judgments of the risk and benefit and teach the patient what those are and let the patient decide and we prescribe it, have access to it, and we go from there. That whole process has been the cornerstone of medicine in this country from the get-go, and it has been the hallmark of the Hippocratic tradition in medicine for 2,500 years and certainly clinical practice every day. And suddenly everything was blocked and doctors were restricted by employers, by state politicians and governors, by pharmacy boards, medical boards, the FDA issued guidelines based on a, a contradiction that any listener can go to on their own website and where they showed that they said in one block, hydroxychloroquine potentially could cause harm in the outpatient setting. And on the block below that, the FDA's website said, I took a screenshot of it, by the way, actually said the only studies they had were based on inpatient studies when it's a critical illness and there's heart damage from the virus and there's other damage from the virus and nothing works as well when people are critically ill. So the FDA contradicted itself on its own webpage and nobody held them accountable. So back to the story in the second hour, Senator Johnson, you were going to make a couple of other points about that as we broke for the first hour and headed into the second. So take it away. Well, at the end of the first hour, you were describing about the live, you know, doing calculation on how many lives could have been saved. Um, so I, I talked about the national stockpile log jam, which we broke that, uh, never broke the prescription log jam. And that's because an even greater log jam that we're up against now is the they will never admit they were wrong log jam. Uh, they can't. I mean, if, if, they, if they were to admit that they were wrong at not allowing doctors to have access, not robustly exploring uh, the use of things like hydroxychloroquine or in a multi-drug cocktail or ivermectin or cyclosporine, if they were to admit that they were wrong, denying patients access to those potentially life-saving drugs, it, you understand what the implication is. I mean, th they would be responsible for literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of lost lives. And so they will never, ever admit they were wrong. Uh, and, and that just prevents them from really taking the appropriate action now. Uh, it is interesting, the NIH right now has, has and I, I saw an article by 
uh, Dr. Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, uh, who testified, by the way, in our, in our first roundtable on COVID back in February 2020. But uh, he's now writing about the, and I think the NIH, NIH has announced the fact that they are going to study uh, potential treatments, you know, the use of a pill. And I think the uh, Wall Street Journal article that Dr. Gottlieb uh, published said something about, you know, having a pill that would reduce viral replication and reduce the severity of the illness. And yeah, you know, I read that. I was, I was just. It was well, just that's so, Corquin. It already did that. Oh, well, that, that's you know, obviously what you know. That's certainly what practicing physicians are finding. That whether it's hydroxychloroquine, whether it's ivermectin, whether it could be cyclosporine. You know, there were already doctors that fully believe, and you know, as you said, Doctor Doctor Risha's meta-analysis uh, would indicate that uh, we already had those prescriptions, but in particularly, I think he was talking about Pfizer might have a drug. Yeah, again, one of the questions on my mind, gee, I wonder how much Pfizer will charge for that little pill. When well, again, exactly. chloroquine, costs, chloroquine costs seven cents a tablet to manufacture. Well, let's go back to something you said. And I want to, I want our listeners to know that actually our NIH, including the division where Dr. Fauci is located, has known for 20 years that hydroxychloroquine does exactly what Senator Johnson just said this new pill from Pfizer is supposed to do. Because it took me five minutes in February 2020 to do a quick PubMed search and find the study on hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine that goes back to SARS-CoV-1 in 2002, 2003, and the NIH and CDC and Montreal Institute of Research did a study on the cell culture study showing that chloroquine and of course its sister derivative, hydroxychloroquine, actually had potent antiviral activity in cell culture to stop the virus from binding to the cell surface receptors to enter the cell. And any layperson out there with common sense knows if you have a lock on the door and you lock the door and a burglar can't come in, that's the first step at preventing damage to your home. Well, that's what hydroxychloroquine does. It actually is locking the lock on the surface of the cell so the virus can't enter. And they knew that 20 years ago. And I found the published study, it took me five minutes on, online in February, 2020. Here's the published study in the, in, in the NIH Journal of Virology, Dr. Fauci's own agency publication. And it, it has this big headline, chloroquine has potent antiviral activity against the SARS coronavirus. So in addition to blocking the lock and use the burglary analogy, burglars come in, if, you, if the lock is open and your door is open, the burglars come in and they run through the house and damage your house and try to find everything they can and rip it apart and take it. Well, if hydroxychloroquine is present in your body, then the virus can't get in the cell. And if it had already gotten in the cell, the hydroxychloroquine blocks the virus from multiplying 
in your cell using your cell ability to do that. So it stops the internal damage in your body. Two critical steps at the beginning of any infectious disease. They knew that 20 years ago. So there is no way anybody can tell me that the people telling us, at N people at NIH in particular and FDA telling me that telling us physicians and the public that hydroxychloroquine is dangerous. There's no way they didn't know that study was done in their own, under their own control 20 years and published in their journal. So I just want our listeners to know, we did know early that we had medicine that could work in this pandemic. And we saw it across the board every day. There is not a single patient that I treated all last year and into this year when I start within the first three or four days of symptoms, not a single patient went in the hospital, not a single patient died. And that's what the frontline physicians day in and day out are finding if they use this combined approach. And of course, because the, the media was completely biased against Trump, and I think uh, certainly one of the motivations was they could really use COVID as a bludgeon to make sure that he wouldn't get reelected. I mean, this is not information the main the mainstream media, social media would would reveal, would expose. They suppress this information. Now, I, I remember, and I'd kind of like to start talking a little bit about the hearings we held. But I, I remember early on in the pandemic, uh, doctors that were posting videos uh, that were outside the standard guideline, which was put people on, put somebody on a ventilator. Now, remember, we put the War Production Act in so we create new new ventilators. The problem is the ventilators weren't working. Uh, very high level fatality rate. If you let the disease progress that far, you know, pretty much ventilator just prolonged the suffering and the patient still died at a very high rate. And so doctors that were looking at that and going, this isn't working. Um, and they started exploring other things. This is more this is inflammation. Again, I, I, I've got to be careful because I'm not a doctor, but I've talked to a lot of doctors. I, I can probably say enough to just be dangerous, but they were exploring different theories of what COVID was, you know, what was killing people. It wasn't really the virus. It was this, the body's immune response, inflammatory and, and the cytokine storm, and then deep thrombosis and, you know, whatever you call that. Um, so the blood clot problem was very severe and that virus does trigger an exaggerated <laughs> blood clotting response. So you're right. Inflammation and blood clotting late in the disease are the problems that were killing people. So, so I, I perceived two problems. <clears throat> First of all, was the state of fear. Uh, I, I remember being on a, I think might've been a Republican Senate conference call with the task force and Dr. Fauci was on it. And this was as he continued to push for shutdowns. And I asked Dr. Fauci, I said, well, you know, doctor, uh, are, are you at all considering the human toll, the economic devastation that is going to be the result of these economic shutdowns? And you know, I'm not sure I, I said it to him on the call, or I also said it publicly, and, and he trashed me for it, by the way, uh, as did the press. I said, we tragically lose 36,000 people a year in the highway, but we don't shut down a trans transportation system. We can't. You know, you, you can't shut down the economy. We need grocery stores. We need pharmacies. And by the way, those need an awful lot of businesses to, so they can stay open. So the, the bottom line is the vast majority of the American economy is essential and has to remain open. 
But when I made that comment to him on that conference call, I will never forget this. And this is where I really became not a fan anymore. Uh, he said, well, no, Senator Johnson, that's, uh, that's somebody else's department. I just, I just have to worry on the, on the pandemic. Um, no, as, as a doctor, you have to worry about the entire patient. But anyway, so, so I held a hearing in, on May 6th where I brought in people like uh, uh, Dr. John Ioannidis. He's, he's the gentleman out in Stanford that uh, did the study on the, the, I think it was the Princess cruise ship. That, that really started, from my standpoint, calming me down, uh, showing that the eventual infection fatality rate is going to be a lot lower than certainly SARS or, or MERS was. Remember, uh, Ebola is something like 40%. MERS was 30%. SARS, the initial SARS, was close to 10%. And here we're looking at something more in the you know 1% to 2% infection fatality rate or even lower. Right now, the Oxford Center for Evidence-Based Medicine is saying eventually it'll be 0.1 to 0.35%. A really bad flu season is about 0.13 to 0.19. So again, to me, that started easing my mind. Again, never downplaying the severity. There's, there's no doubt about it. You take a look at excess deaths, COVID caused excess deaths, and, and it turned, it's a nasty disease when it turns on you. So again, I never downplayed but that, but, but I had people like that just to provide evidence of course, Democrats and my committee didn't want to hear any of this, but the reason I wanted to talk about the May 6th hearing is I also very late, uh, a late witness was Dr. Pierre Corey, who uh, I heard was talking about the use of corticosteroids, which was also part of some of these other doctors that were on the internet, but they were, their videos were getting pulled off because it wasn't putting people on ventilators. It was, it was a different approach. It, they were practicing medicine. And so I, I put Dr. Pierre, Pierre Corian as a witness very late, and he talked about his groups, the, the frontline uh, critical care for COVID. I think that's what, what the, the name of the group is, with, headed up by Paul Merrick, world-renowned physician, uh, again, of critical care specialists. And they were using corticosteroids with success. And so I had him testify. After that hearing, I've had doctors call me and thank me for helping them save their patient's life. And it wasn't me, I just, you know, Dr. Corey's the one that, uh, you know, has this. Now, I think our federal health agencies also ought to be embarrassed by the fact that it was the British and their studies that approved doxycycline, which continues to be pretty much a standard of care, certainly in hospitals, not before that. Uh, that should have come out of America. Uh, but, you know, that, that was my first hearing where I had Pierre Corey fast forward I held a hearing after the election once I got involved. I'm sure you're the one that connected me with the C-19 email group of, again, treating physicians from around the world uh, as, as, the, as an email group that, that really couldn't be censored on, on the internet. I mean, this is exchanging information. That's where I, I became aware of uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch. I saw his video of him during his treatment and he was using the hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, I mean, you know, the vitamins, all that kind of stuff. He, he had been really sick, but, but he was recovering. So that's the first time I, I met uh, Dr. Peter McCulloch. And then I decided from really my conversations with him and the rest of the C-19 group, including you, to put on another hearing on November 19th. And the title was Early Outpatient Treatment, an Essential Part of COVID-19 Solution. And that's where Dr. McCulloch really talked about the four pillars of responding to any pandemic. The first pillar being uh, prevent the spread, 
which is what we try to do with all these shutdowns. You know, I think you have to look at that as we probably did flatten the curve. And now with the advent of the, of the vaccine, we probably saved lives by flattening that curve. But I mean, you have to understand the, the enormous human toll, that economic devastation of flattening that curve. And that's, again, something that Fauci doesn't even really consider. But that's the first pillar. The second pillar was early treatment. The third pillar is in-hospital treatment, and that's the corticosteroids. And we became more and more efficient and effective at that because there were doctors like Dr. Pierre Corey and the doctor in the agencies in the UK that came up with doxycycline. And then finally, you have vaccines. And it, what that hearing is all about is we've completely ignored, as, as federal health, health agencies, early treatment. And what was amazing about that, that the Democrat witness was uh, Dr. Ashish Jha. Again, I, I said in, in my question, have you ever treated a COVID patient? No, Senator. And this is their expert. And they were basically trashing the witnesses I called. Now, Dr. McCulloch, who got COVID from treating patients. Dr. George Freed, who with Brian Tyson had treated thousands successfully, they're just trashing that real world experience. Dr. Harvey Rich testified at that committee hearing as well. And that was after that hearing where Dr. Ja wrote a piece for the, for the New York Times that the New York Times titled, The Snake Oil Salesman of the Senate. Well, listen, I, I, I'm a, by the way, I don't consider myself a politician. I'm a citizen legislator, but that's part of our, part, part of the territory here. We, we get criticized and we just have to take it. I thought it was beyond the pale to be calling people like Dr. McCulloch, Dr. Rich, Dr. Freed, snake oil salesmen. That was grotesque. And I can't tell you how repulsed I was by that, by that article. Fast forward, uh, I, I didn't let the criticism bother me at all. Uh, I thought this was very important. So we had on December 8th, early outpatient treatment, an essential part of COVID-19 solution, part two, put it right back in their face. And this, this, this time I had, uh, you know, I had Dr. Corey come back. I also had uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. Uh, I had Dr. Jane Orient, and of course she was trashed as an anti-vaxxer. I don't believe she is, but this wasn't a, a hearing on vaccines. It was about early treatment. And this is the hearing that Dr. Corey got, and by the way, he, he describes himself as a liberal Democrat. He got really upset that my ranking member basically accused him of just being nothing more than a political hack, and then pretty well walked out of the hearing. The Democrats boycotted the second hearing, but not until my ranking member, Gary Peters, who's now chairman of the committee, trashed the doctors and trashed the hearing. So Dr. Pierre Corey, in his testimony, first of all, addressed that and just talked about how outrageous that was. Then he went on to talk about, now one study in particular in Argentina where 800 healthcare workers were prophylaxed with a multi-drug prophylaxis, including ivermectin. Not one got COVID. Of the 400 that didn't get it, 58% got COVID. Now, I know it wasn't a random controlled study, but, or clinical trial, but it seems like a pretty good observational study. That testimony was viewed by more than 8 million people on YouTube until YouTube pulled it down, until they censored it. Again, now this is December of 2020. We're, 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 right, we're about ready to get the authorization on, on vaccines. Even with vaccines, you're still going to need early treatment. And, you know, he, he's just begging that his, his group's manuscript be considered by the NIH. By the way, we did submit that to the NIH. And again, they won't admit they're wrong. But what they actually did do is they changed their August guidance, which was negative toward ivermectin, 
and at least went neutral. They're not going to recommend it because they won't admit they're wrong, but at least they went neutral. But that really has not helped doctors uh, access ivermectin. It's gotten so bad that families are suing hospitals, forcing hospitals to prescribe and administer ivermectin to their loved one that's, that are on ventilators. And so there have been some courageous judges that have ordered that and the, the hospitals complied and people have come off ventilators. But there have also been cases where even though judges have ordered it, the hospitals still refuse to administer ivermectin. Let me quick back up too, because I don't think we made this point well enough. These are drugs, hydroxychloroquine, 65 years, administered safely. Ivermectin termed a miracle drug by, by the World Health Organization and its antiparasitic uh, benefits. Th these are drugs that are administered in millions and billions of doses safely. And now all of a sudden, you've got a, a dying patient and our health agencies aren't willing to give people the freedom to give it a shot. So, you know, listen, I, again, I'm not a doctor. I, I, I can't intelligently read these studies, but I, I can understand that these are safe drugs. And if it's me and I'm dying or my loved one's dying, I would give them a shot. And I would be outraged if I didn't, if I didn't have the freedom to do that. I, I'm the champion of right to try legislation. So and I'm, I'm glad you brought the right to try, and, and it's that's been denied people because of media, social media, and our federal health, health agencies. And I am outraged by it. Well, so am I. And I'd like for you to share with our listeners a little background on all of your efforts to get right to try passed in the United States, because that, that is a major accomplishment. We had been trying, our organization and many doctors had been trying for years. Tell us a little bit about that as background, because that directly relates to the fact that people are prevented from making their treatment decisions now by hospital health system administrative people, not by the doctors. I've talked to critical care doctors, and I have patients who've had family members in critical care facilities. The doctors are saying our administrator will not allow us to prescribe it. It is not being made as a medical decision, I assure you. Tell us about right. Yeah, first of all, the administrators are going to make sure that they can't get sued and they can't get sued if they follow FDA, NIH, CDC guidelines. So that, that's why these federal health agencies now are completely controlling the practice of medicine. And I, I think it's costing people their lives. So I, I met with the Goldwater Institute. This is probably back in 2014, 2015. They are the group that really was pushing a, a pretty much a state strategy, pa passing rights to try in the states, uh, just as a way to build pressure and set the groundwork to pass a federal right to try statute, which you needed to, to basically allow the state right to try statutes to work. And so I met with them. And then two weeks later, I met with the uh, uh, a number of groups with ALS patients, and one of them in particular was a beautiful young mom, three children, uh, had a ALS. Her name was Trigget Wendler. And I'll just never forget that meeting because I said I just met with Goldwater and I'm a big supporter of Right to Try, and tears started streaming down her cheeks. Uh, it was at that moment I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to champion this bill. It took a couple of years. Uh, pharma was highly resistant. They, they don't like this because they, they don't want to kind of be forced. I, listen, I understand the issue here. They don't want to be forced to uh, administer drugs that could have adverse effects, effects and then could affect their ability to actually get them FDA approved. So I understand that. Uh, 
Um, but I think what trumps it is people's freedom to decide these things for themselves. And so we worked with pharma, you know, we got the bill to a place where they said, okay, we, you know, we're not going to, we're not going to lobby against this. You know, we're, 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 we're okay with what you're doing here in the Senate. Now it took me a little had to hold up the, the FDA user fee bill that everybody wanted in order to get my bill passed by unanimous consent. So in the Senate, right to try passed unanimously by unanimous consent. So it goes over the House. Now, Pharma had said they weren't going to do anything to hamper its passage in the House. And this is, you know, Paul Ryan's speaker and Republican control. I thought this is going to be a no-brainer. It's going to, going to happen. Nope. Uh, I don't think Pharma lived up to their word because somebody turned that into a, a partisan issue. Uh, the, the Democrat uh, ranking member on the, the, the health committee, the uh, can't remember what it's called, uh, energy, it's, it's, a, it's a weird name for in, in, this, in the House, uh, all of a sudden turned this into a, a, a partisan issue. And the House ended up passing their own version. And I kept telling them, don't do this, because we, we won't be able to take up your partisan version. It, it, it dies, if you, you pass, but they still passed it. Uh, they, they quite honestly, and these Republicans used Jordan uh, McGlynn, a uh, little seven-year-old with uh, Deshaun muscular dystrophy as a prop on the floor of the Senate to pass a bill that they knew would kill right to try. So they went ahead and passed it and they killed it. It wasn't gonna pass until President Trump, God bless him, in his State of the Union address, and I had no idea he was gonna do this. I had no idea. Uh, talked about how we have, we have to give patients the right to try. And as he's talking about this, I'm going, is, is, is he talking about right to try? So I was like a, a jack in the, you know, the jack in the jack in the box out of my seat applauding when he said he was gonna get behind right to try. Had it not been for his leadership, we, we wouldn't have right to try. So there, there's, there's the truth of how we got right to try passed after many years. I think Big Pharma did intercede and tried to kill it. But President Trump, Vice President Pence, who met one of the names, uh, Frank Mangiello, uh, also had ALS. He's from Pennsylvania. Uh, Pr Vice President Pence, and during the campaign, met him and his family. Uh, by the way, it only takes you, you know, one meeting with somebody who's desperate, terminally ill, has no other treatment options to be on board with Right to Try. So that kind of a, sorry, long story, uh, but that was the, the, the history of Right to Try. And I, I, I was you know, among many people, but I was the champion here in, in Congress to get that thing passed. We'll be right back after the break. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Each of us is born with 30 trillion cells that make us. These cells determine how we feel, perform, sleep, focus, and how long we live. And to live our best life, all we have to do is feed our cells. But most food and supplements don't reach our cells, keeping us from reaching our full potential. Make every cell count with Healthy Cell. Founded with a mission to empower people to take control of their own health at the most fundamental level, Dr. Vincent Jampapa, world-renowned cell researcher and medical doctor, created supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. And that's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -E -L -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. 
the America Out Loud family is comprised of patriots in the true sense of the word. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty and the Constitution to help save America for future generations to come. AmericaOutloud.com It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back to the Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host for Malcolm. And this really is the story of the journey through COVID. And it is the voice of a nation in the biggest sense. As Senator Johnson and I, as a practicing physician, are sharing the story of what it was like to work on the front lines, in the trenches, trying to save lives through this pandemic and Senator Johnson working on many fronts to try and help prevent some of the extraordinary economic damage and fallout that hurt so many families way beyond the death toll of COVID itself. And I I wanted to devote this entire program to this because I think this journey is so critical for our listeners to understand literally we and many hundreds of other frontline physicians were trying to be the voice of a nation all along in helping to break through the stakeholders lock and stranglehold on access to early treatment that is still going on. So ladies and gentlemen, I want you to realize that we are your voice and it is time for you also to get loud and let ledger, you know, lobby your legislators and start exerting more pressure. We've got to work together. So, Senator Johnson, thank you for staying with us for the whole time today. I think it's been an incredible story, and and our listeners can be grateful to your leadership in Washington. There were several other things you wanted to uh, address as we begin this last part of today's show. Well, we, we kind of left off before we got into Right to Try, but we kind of left off at my December uh, hearing on early treatment, the part two, with uh, Dr. Pierre Corey talking about ivermectin, uh, him being getting censored uh, by YouTube. Uh, he continues to push us worldwide. He thought he had the World Health Organization, but there continue to be forces at play that are opposed to these cheap generic uh, drugs that you know can be repurposed and and uh, can safely treat uh, COVID. Uh, part, part part of the dynamic going on occurring right now is the the rapid development of the vaccine. And you know, I, I have to say, I, I was a I thought it was brilliant the way uh, you know. I know there were a couple senators really pushed this. Uh, uh, Steve Daines is one of them internally, but uh, you know, Secretary Azar, President Trump, in terms of Operation Warp Speed. But what they did there is they, they squeezed out every inefficiency in the drug development process. Nor, normally you go through phase one and then you have to pause and you have to get funding and you know that takes can take years. And then you go through phase two and you pause and you have to get funding and then you go pick phase three. And that, that's why drugs you know, take on, I think, average 13 years to get final approval and cost them like one to two billion dollars per drug. Uh, but again, we're in the midst of pandemic. So the Trump administration 
all hands on deck. And, and really just in record time. And if you remember all, all the press trashing him, every, you know, everybody saying, ah, oh, you, you can't do this. There's no way. And, you know, President Trump said, no, we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year and, and we'll start administering it. Well, he was right. We did. So I first have to say, you know, I'm, I was a big supporter of Operation Warp Speed. You know, I, I, I hoped and prayed that it would be effective, that it would be, you know, safe. And, you know, also recognizing that anytime you inject something to the human body, some people are going to have negative reactions. I mean, that's, it's true. The flu vaccine is true, it's true with everything, you know. So you, you public policy and, you know, officials... That, that's just part of the accepted risk, but that's that's the whole point behind right to try and also right to choose, you know, to, to have transparent information so you understand this. So again, I, I have to say that because you know, my involvement in the vaccine, I guess call it discussion or debate right now, uh, I, I never intended to get there other than to say I'm totally supportive of uh, Operation Warp Speed. I'm, I'm glad it seems to be so effective. I'm, I'm glad, you know, so many people have got it so we can end this pandemic. I mean, this has been a disaster for, and it's taken enormous human toll. So I just, whatever we can do to end this pandemic, that's why I was so supportive of early treatment. I think we could have ended this pandemic and maybe wouldn't have even needed a vaccine had we done it, but be that as it may. So uh, a couple months ago, I'm giving an interview and I have no idea what prompted the, the local Milwaukee reporter to ask me, so well, Senator Johnson, have you been vaccinated? And my answer was just very honest said no, because I had COVID. And just real quick, I had COVID uh, without symptoms. Uh, I, I have taken a number of preventative tests because I'm with the public. You know, I've, I've been around the president, you know, so you get tested frequently. I probably had, you know, close to a dozen COVID tests. Well, it just happens on my sixth or seventh test, I tested positive. Couldn't, couldn't really couldn't believe it. I, said, I don't, I feel fine, but, you know, I certainly heard of asymptomatic COVID. So, you know, three or four days later, had a, another test, confirmed it, and you know, I never had symptoms. Um, and so, you know, this this reporter asked me, you know, have you had the vaccine? I said no, I, I had COVID, and you know, so I, I believe I probably have uh, as, as good immunity, if not better, than even the vaccine would impart. And this was two months ago, and we didn't have enough vaccine for all the people that wanted it. So I said, I'm, I'm, I'll certainly let more vulnerable people take the vaccine before I ever consider getting it. Well. That interview blew into another attack, and I've been attacked on multiple fronts on a host of different issues because they want this U.S. Senate seat, the Democrats do, and the press. So this is just another line of attack. So immediately I'm attacked as an anti-vaxxer. Um, so that, that was a couple months ago. Since that point in time, and I'll even back up here, prior to the vaccine even getting authorization, because of my work on early treatment, I am in contact with doctors like you, but literally doctors all over the world. And there was certainly, I think, a legitimate concern being expressed. Again, not from doctors that are anti-vaxxers, but doctors that are just prudent in, in making sure that we have all the safety data and we do this, you know, the complete studies, that type of thing, before we engage in a mass uh, indiscriminate vaccination campaign. And I certainly had doctors expressing to me their concern of vaccinating everybody, including those that were previously infected. Again, I mean, in, in layman's terms, it seems to me that what kills patients is the body's immune response and over-immune over response, which creates these you know, cytokine storm and inflammation, that type of thing. And so they were concerned about a vaccine 
could prompt in a certain subset of a minority of patients an over immune reaction and, and could do harm. Um, so that, that was, that was you know, I was aware of that even before the emergency use and even before the VAERS data began to accumulate. Um, so you know, now, now that I've seen the VAERS data, and, and again, I, I've, I've got to put the condition here, I realize VAERS is an early reporting system. It's not reported by doctors, it's reported by patients' families. But it's the early reporting system that the CDC has set up. I think there's a lot we could do to improve it. There's many flaws in it, but the numbers are really quite stark. Uh, and so currently, I mean, the most recent report, uh, there have been over 4,000 deaths reported in the VAERS system. 3,361 3, have occurred within 30 days of vaccination. And of those 3,361, uh, 45% or 1,516 occur on days zero, one, or two. Um, there've also been over 12,600 uh, hospitalizations. And th there's a lot more, uh, for example, emergency room uh, reports as well. So again, again, a standard flu season. And again, I think people are more uh, prompted to report adverse effects with a COVID vaccine than they would normally with a flu vaccine, because that's so routine. But in a normal flu season, you probably have a couple dozen people that, are, that report dying on the VAERS system with the flu vaccine versus what we're seeing right now with the, uh, the COVID vaccine. And there's mounting anecdotal evidence of people that have been previously infected with the blood clotting. Uh, you know, a 33-year-old woman, uh, for example, was paralyzed in 13 hours. I mean, she's getting better, fortunately. Uh, some other notable, you know, one notable doctor that died, a couple of them may have died, but it just seems like the, the NIH, the FDA, the CDC is just kind of glossing this over. Uh, they've, they've talked about, you know, these six young, young women of uh, childbearing age uh, with this very rare condition uh, being affected by that. That's about all they've really admitted that there, there may be some causal relationship between that and the vaccine. All I'm saying is, these numbers certainly get my attention, and I think this needs to be taken very seriously and I think thoroughly investigated. And, and quite honestly, I don't think we should be pushing a max vaccination campaign, certainly on people that were previously infected. By the way, I, I did, Dr. Norchasm wrote me a prescription to have my antibody tested because, you know, truthfully, Dr. Lee, I, I never was quite sure that I had COVID. Never had symptoms. I know I had the two tests. I've heard about false positives with this highly sensitive PCR test. So I just never was quite sure, uh, but still leading a pretty normal life, taking you know reasonable precautions. But I've never been as afraid of COVID as so many people have. But I was actually quite pleased when I took the antibody test to realize I've got a very high level of antibodies. And this is seven months after I had COVID. So in one case, mine, I'm pretty thoroughly convinced. Everything I have read too, in terms of the natural immunities, quite honestly, superiority to a, a very, a vaccine targeted toward the spike protein, um, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty comfortable. I'm, I'm very comfortable not getting a vaccine. And again, I'll, I'll still follow the science and we'll continue to probably do antibody tests, that kind of stuff on, on vaccinated and previously infected as well. But, but currently I'm sticking to my guns. I, I'm not gonna get a vaccine. And, and I'm at this point in time, uh, really advocating for people's right to choose. Again, the well, champion right that's to try, we, I, I'm for people's right to choose. 
to have informed consent, to recognize that this, this is still not a fully approved vaccine. It's, it's gone through phase one. It appears very effective in general, based on the number of doses, still very safe. But there are concerning warning signs on the VAER system that uh, I think uh, the Fauci's and the Collins of the world have to take uh, more seriously than they appear to be taking. Well, you're absolutely right. And on two critical points from the medical ethics side of what you just said, as, as a concerned citizen legislator and a person who's been sick with COVID, number one, we've never vaccinated people who had the disease. Doctors wouldn't think of vaccinating someone who'd had mumps or measles or chickenpox, for example, because we all know that natural immunity is far superior. And by giving a vaccine on top of someone who's had the illness, you risk more adverse effects. It's a fundamental principle of vaccination we've used literally since I started in medicine. So that's point one. Point two, the foundational principles of medicine going back to ancient Greece in the days of Hippocrates, the founder, the father of modern medicine, fast forward all the way through to modern era and the founding of the FDA. And that was founded in the time between World War I and World War II. And always the principle has been informed consent, clinical trials apply to the, those in the clinical trial, not extended beyond that until there's more safety data. And then fast forward to World War II and the heinous crimes of the, the Nazi regime and the Holocaust and experimentation, medical experimentation on Jews in prisoner of war camps, concentration camps, and ultimately the Nuremberg trials that put those doctors to death for experimenting on humans without consent. And in fact, when they were prisoners in a concentration camp. So ever since the founding of the FDA and the following Nuremberg Code of Ethics and Conduct and other international codes of conduct, we have never in our history extrapolated clinical data to groups beyond those in the study or forced, coerced, or in any way implied that there was a mandated medical treatment for human beings without their consent. And all you've got to do is look at the Tuskegee experiment, the Guatemala disaster with the vaccines, and look at what went on experimenting on Blacks and letting them develop the chronic syphilis complications and death without telling them that they had an effective treatment. And that was a debacle that's a stain on our history. And that was dealt with properly. Ultimately, we are in pushing these vaccine mandates to live our lives. We're violating constitutional principles, legal principles, and medical and moral ethical principles across the board. There's no question. So I think your points are well taken, but medically, it's even more serious because these vaccines were designed to cross the blood-brain barrier. We've never had that before. 
and they designed with the lipid coating to cross the placental barrier. So they affect the developing baby who has no immune system. I did a show with a maternal fetal medicine expert. So there are many aspects of these experimental vaccines that make them quite different from anything we've ever used before, which is all the more reason we need more safety data. And those of us who are calling for safety data and proper application of the laws and regulations and ethics in medicine and proper screening of patients before you do a treatment, all of us calling for that are labeled anti-vaxxers, which is flagrantly not true. I've been using vaccines in my practice all along. I've gotten vaccines myself. I'm sure you have too. So the point is this vaccine, like any other, should not be given to people who've had COVID and recovered. They have a natural immunity to the whole virus, the, the nucleocapsid, the round ball in the pictures that our listeners have seen. The vaccine is targeted to just immunity to the spike protein. So it's only part of the virus, common sense. You've got broader, more durable immunity. We also know that the people who got SARS-CoV-1 infection in 20 years ago still have immunity today. There have been studies on that. So at least we know that the people who got sick with the SARS-CoV-1 virus and recovered who had that shares 78% of the genome of the SARS-CoV-2 we face today, they still have immunity. So at least you know you got 20 years out of natural immunity based on past experience. And this is just critically important for our listeners to know. You know, as, as a non-doctor, you know, as a layman, uh, you know, I, I, I can't make pronouncements in terms of, you know, the, the things you're just talking about right now. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a layman, but I'm, I'm a very inquisitive person when things simply don't make sense, you know, from a layman's standpoint, I, I started asking a lot of questions, you know, obviously I haven't been attacked as an anti-vaxxer, even though I've gotten every flu shot since, you know, the, the, the mid seventies, I'm up to date on all my other vaccines. And, and you get attacked, I mean, you start doing, do, you start digging into these things. So yeah, I'm aware of the fact, for example, an Israeli study, uh, I think it's still pre-published, but it's, it's, it's available. Um, it, it is basically saying that your natural immunity is as good, if not better than, than the vaccine. And again, doesn't that make sense? I mean, as a, as a lay person, I would just assume if you've been sick with something, you're not going to get sick again. And I don't, I don't know. There may be, there may be disease. You can get reinfected. I'm sure there probably are. I'm, I'm, I can't, you know, talk about anything off the top of my head. But the general default position from a layperson standpoint was be, you know, once you've had it, you don't have to worry about it anymore. And what puzzles me and what gets makes me ask questions is why wouldn't that pretty much be the default position of our health agencies instead? It's not their default position. They are they're pushing vaccines on everybody. You know, the max vac vaccination campaign. And now the FDA has come out with, uh, and again, the doctors I'm talking to, completely fraudulent uh, guidance that's talking about the fact that, you know, the, the presence of antibodies really doesn't prove immunity. Um, what? It, it, I had it, not it, heard that. Well, I'll, 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 I'll text you to it. Again, it's just... It, it doesn't make sense. I'll, I'll text you what what this you know what the whatever they call it, the guidance pronouncement uh, you know whatever, and, and and it's it's almost kind of curious in in light of the fact that you know I've been attacked now now Senator Paul they've, they've kind of turned their attention away from me and they're attacking Senator Paul for 
you know, because he was previously infected. He's not getting the vaccine either. So they're targeting somebody else now. But again, it doesn't make sense. And then you throw on top of all of this, uh, kind, kind of the, the recent news. By the way, this information has been hidden in plain sight for months. You know, now they're finally opening themselves up again to the lab origination theory, which, you know, the minute Tom Cotton talked about this, I pretty well assumed that's what happened. You know, particularly in light of how, how soon I found out about all the cooperative gain of function and other research on, you know, creating, you know, chimeric viruses and, and you know, the, the back and forth uh, between the, the Wuhan Institute of Virology and, for example, uh, uh, Dr. Barrick in University of North Carolina, Chapel Hills, and Peter Dasik of, you know, EcoHealth Alliance. I mean, th th this has been known for months, but, you know, because this is not to be spoken, you know, we, we certainly can't question anything that Fauci might have done in the past. This has been off limits. And what broke the lag logjam in terms of people actually being able to talk about this and ask questions about what U.S. research might have been used or potentially weaponized by China, uh, did, did the U.S. government do? What, what was approved by Fauci and Collins in their group? Uh, but the reason we can ask those questions now and, and hopefully get some answers out of, out of those folks is because Nicholas Wade, the former science writer, New York Times, has written a very detailed article, which pretty well leads to the conclusion this, this was probably at least accidentally leaked from a lab. But, but remember, this was papooed. It, it was completely dismissed by Anthony Fauci when he knew full well back in you know the start of this pandemic that you know this is exactly the kind of research he had been funding through Re Dr. Ralph Barrick, you know, in, in, in different forms, you know, throughout the uh, NIAID uh, grant writing process. I mean, again, this this has been he has certainly known about this. He's denied it for months. And now he's, he's going to be going to be held accountable for this from my standpoint. And I, I can't wait to hear some honest answers out of Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins. I doubt we'll get them, but uh, you know, hopefully, the, hopefully the media will start putting pressure on him, start answering these, these basic questions that the, the question should have been answered or asked months ago. Exactly right. And, and I watched um, the hearing when Senator Paul was asking these questions of Dr. Fauci. And I have myself dug into the research and going back quite a long time, even before the last few years, to, to know that this is documented. There are citations that Dr. Peter Bragan includes in his book that document the history of some of these studies. And that's been going on for a very long time not just related to the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And, and I watched him and the arrogance in his body language and the flat out lie, which I knew because I'd read the published studies from earlier years. I knew that there was published studies to describe exactly what they were doing. They were publishing their scientific advances in their mind, scientific, about what they were doing to manipulate the viruses to make them more lethal, more infective, or have other properties that were not present in nature. We've known that for a long time, at least 20, 20 years or perhaps more. Now, what I would like to observe 
as a common sense and go back to your point about common sense. One of the reasons that Americans have lost trust in our agencies that are supposed to be protecting our health is because the average layman in this country is a lot smarter than the government arrogant elite bureaucrats give them credit for. And the average American is asking exactly the same questions you are, common sense. Why would we push so fast and so hard with experimental vaccines, particularly in people who've already had the illness? All of these combined efforts of suppression, big tech censorship, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, LinkedIn, blocking people's shutting down their content, censorship we've never seen before in this country, combined censorship, flagrant distortions, misrepresentations, and even lies from our public health officials that the public knows don't make sense. All of that, and then they turn around and say, people have vaccine hesitancy. Well, no wonder. They have created the climate of mistrust of their pronouncements by their actions, they are responsible for the vaccine hesitancy because what they're telling the public doesn't make sense. And they're, I'm sorry, I'll just say this, they're too stupid to see that their own pressurized tactics and and suppression and censorship and violation of our laws and rights are exactly the very behaviors that are fueling people stepping back and saying, whoa, this doesn't make sense. So, so that, that's the point I actually made to Dr. Collins. I uh, had a meeting with him with a bunch of other senators a couple of weeks ago. When, again, he's talking about vaccine has, hesitancy. And of course, they're using that as a derogatory term. And the point I made is, so, you know, the, the people I'm talking to uh, that, you know, know people who have had a severe reaction. And, and that, that's part of the problem here is Americans aren't stupid. Uh, they've seen and they know family members, neighbors and stuff that, that really have gotten very sick after this vaccine. And so th- they're, they're hesitating. I'm, my sister-in-law got the first dose. There's no way she was going to get the second dose. She almost went to the emergency room. So uh, what I told him, I said, it's, it's a derogatory term. I think a more accurate term is they're hesitant to be forced into participating in the largest drug trial in history. You know, I was... Uh, I came to Washington, D.C. as part of the Tea Party movement. I'm not into big government. You know, I think the federal government is, is doing things our founders would never have contemplated it would have taken over from the states and really the, the, the power from the people. Uh, but you know, we do need a federal government to do certain things. And it is just tragic. Agency after agency, through their own actions, are destroying their own credibility, and their own integrity. I had a, one of the hit pieces uh, published against me by the New York Times. I think the title was Assaulting the Truth. Senator Johnson is reducing faith in government. You know, first of all, when I ran for office, I made two promises. I'll, I'll always tell you the truth. And secondly, I'll never vote with my reelection in mind. By extension, I'm not going to conduct myself worrying about reelection. I've, I've honored those promises. You know, I'm not perfect. If I get something wrong, I correct it. But I am really working overtime to just tell people the truth. You know, no, not go beyond what I know, but also pushing for transparency. But I, I have to admit, I, I don't think I have to do anything or that I can do anything to further re- reduce or erode confidence in government. They're doing that all on their own. 
and you know, particularly with the health agencies. And I think it's tragic. I, mean, I think it's important that we have health agencies that the American public have absolute confidence in. I'd like to think that the FBI had credibility and integrity and that the American public had absolute confidence that there would be an equal administration of justice. But James Comey destroyed that. Christopher Ray hasn't rehabilitated it. And now Anthony Fauci and, and uh, Dr. Collins and, and the people that have done this, Janet Woodcock, Dr. Bright, I think because of their, their inconsistency and the fact that you just, you, you can't trust them. You, you, I, just, I, I don't trust them. I, I wish I did. We, we need well, I, those positions where, where you could trust them. And again, it's, it seems like uh, Dr. Fauci, certainly in his testimony, again, we'll see whether they come clean, but I'm talking about the fact that Dr. Collins, three oversight letters later, still has not given me all the information of the hundreds of millions of dollars we spent investigating 600 potentially repurposed drugs. Okay, well, okay, you told me you did that. Why aren't you giving me that information four or five months later? When you, when you tell me that and you don't give me the information, I lose trust in you. We've come to the end of an amazing two hours that has gone by, flown by. I just am so grateful that you spent the time. I, I couldn't be more honored than to have had such a warrior in Washington helping all of us on the front lines trying to get the truth out. We as physicians could never have made the progress we made without our champion in all that you've done as a warrior in Washington for freedom and truth. And our listeners need to be aware of your role and how grateful we are as we close the second hour of Voice of a Nation. This is Dr. Lee for America, your Team Nation guest host in for Malcolm, closing today and urging all of you Get loud, get involved, stand up for truth, speak out, work hard to make the world around you a better place.